Welcome back to the Food Intelligence Podcast presented by TasteWise. My name is Ron. As always, I'm joined by Miriam. And today, to kick off what we have decided is season two of the Food Intelligence Podcast, we're going through the biggest trends of 2022. Our predictions based on our AI platform, TasteWise, um, that uh, our team and Miriam has gathered. Um, some Not necessarily the, the obvious ones that you might think of, but also the ones that are a bit more out there, a bit more special, exciting, maybe maybe even a little weird. Um, we're going to go over these ones, and we're also going to make sure you are set up with a link to the full report that we put together. So all of that is in store for today's episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so Miriam, it has been a little while. It has been. We were enjoying our, our interseason break. But now we're back, yeah. season two. Uh, So what are we going to be talking about today? So today we are going to be covering some really exciting research that we've been doing over the past couple of weeks here at TasteWise. And we've put together, as you said in the intro, our top eight trends for 2022. Um, Today we'll have time probably to cover about half of those. Uh, So we're going to look at the really exciting uh, kind of new, interesting flavor, ingredient, and dish trends, um, as well as some conceptual stuff for the new year. Awesome. Um, so can you real quick, uh, before we get into the trends themselves at a high level, just walk us through how you went about putting all of this together? Um, was this all done through the platform or were there other data sources involved? Or um, even it's interesting to learn who on the team kind of helped out with this. Mm. Uh, to just understand what out of this um, can I, well, like, would I be able to do by myself and what Part of this is like deep analysis work that uh, you've done. Sure, that's a really interesting and great question. Um, so we'll get into as we go through the trends themselves a little bit more about the kind of the methodology behind it. But just to add an overview, um, so everything that we're going to be looking at today was sourced from um, our AI. So this is a TasteWise born and bred project. Um, and just a refresher for those of you out there who maybe aren't as familiar um, within the TasteWise AI kind of structure, we look at menu data restaurant uh, and delivery. Um, We look at recipes and we look at social media, which is a proxy for consumer interest. So um, everything that we're looking at today is uh, interesting. And I'll let you know kind of in what category, but interesting across the board, um, both across consumer interest and uh, food service. Um, We also, of course, looked at uh, kind of what's going on on in the world, uh, macro trends, right? Um, understanding kind of what's trending, what are the the really important things to that way it would be a shame to miss out on. Um, but all of those are, you know, reflected in our platform as well. Uh, your question about teammate, uh, teammate participation, which is a really great one. So um, we had folks from across the board at TasteWise. Most projects are uh, kind of very collaborative, which is a really exciting thing about working here. Um, So we had a lot of collaboration from everything from, uh, you know, our data science team through to our, you know, trend analysis team through uh, to customer success, right? Uh, We really wanted to make sure that the trends we're identifying are not only, you know, interesting to us, but also have real impact out in the market. Uh, So they're a really cool blend of both of those things. Awesome. Yeah. And we've been seeing um, a lot of interest uh, in this uh, in this report from everybody because I think everybody's excited to learn what they can focus on for for next year. Um, Okay, so let's uh, let's get right into it with uh, the first one. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the methodology as we as we kind of go along. 
Sure. Yeah. So um, let me set the scene a little bit for us as I introduce the four that we're going to be covering today. Um, so a taste is one of the things that we are really interested in, and this is uh, true, I think, across the industry. Um, we're really focusing right now on food and beverage that is healthy, sustainable, and tasty. Those are our three um, kind of target areas right now, and, and that's reflected in the industry at large. Um, so the the trends that we've we've selected, right? We know that sustainability, we know that health, and we know that taste. None of those three things are you know groundbreaking and, you know, in and of themselves, the trends that you should be looking out for. But within those, um, there are really interesting trends um, and moments that are uh, kind of coming up and are top of mind in the industry. So we're looking within those three categories at the new and exciting things um, within them. So um, we'll start off with my personal favorite. Um, We're going to take a look in the world of functional food and beverage. Um, And again, for those who need a refresher, functional food and beverage is uh, food and beverage that accomplishes some sort of um, health goal beyond uh, kind of the umbrella term of healthy, right? So if you're looking for, let's say, um, what's a really good one? Gut health or skin health or brain health, heart health. Um, you're looking for depression treatment, sleep support, all that kind of stuff. All of that is within the umbrella of functional food and beverage. Um, and today's consumers are actually a third, there are a third more consumers who are interested in functional food and beverage now than they were a year ago, um, which just goes to show how much the category is growing. Um, it kind of had its roots back, let's say even 2019, even a little bit before, uh, but the pandemic has really expedited that growth. Um, so for looking within the functional food, cat- food category, drum roll, our first trend um, is actually looking at CMOS, uh, CMOS, which is a really exciting one, and its relationship to fertility. So Ron, the big question, will CMOS bring in 2022's baby boom? This is one of those. Uh, so I, I went through the report uh, many, many times as uh, we were kind of developing it. Um, and this is one of the things where I kind of went like almost full circle on because at first I'm like, this is like too weird. But actually, I think it's really interesting because CMOS is um, it's not like fertility is not the only um, consumer need or function for it specifically. Um, right. There's also other things that uh, that are associated with that are really, really interesting to talk about with fertility being the biggest one or or the fastest rising one. I'm, I'm sure you'll get into it um, out of them. So um, I don't know if it'll bring on the next baby boom, but it'll definitely contribute to it. <laughs> <laughs> seems like and it is yeah. important to um, it is important to just point out that when we say, for example, that there is a connection between CMOS and fertility. We're talking about consumer uh, perception. We're talking about how consumers exactly. are thinking about this and the reasons why a large numbers of consumers, and again, we're looking at billions of different data points across social media, recipes, and, and menus, um, and, and of course, uh, recipes online as well. Um, this is being perceived by consumers, regardless of you know any like scientific research, um, as to being tied to this health benefit uh, mean meaning that people are including it in their food, in their uh, kind of da- daily food preparation uh, for this purpose, which is really what's important in terms of uh, getting closer to our consumers and giving them what uh, what they want. Yeah, awesome. Really, really well said. And I'll speak to just um, some of the numbers before we get into uh, the ingredient itself. So um, 
I think we'll start with kind of the the obvious one. So fertility, right? Or obvious because we just said it. But um, fertility in and of itself is a really interesting motivation uh, our consumer need right now. We're seeing that it's actually growing 55% over the last two years. Um, so compared to two years ago, interest in food and beverage that supports fertility is up 55%, which is pretty significant. Um, CMOS within that landscape um, is up 80. So interest in fertility as supported by CMOS is up 87%. So people are turning to CMOS 87% more than just a year ago um, for fertility purposes. Um, And it's not the only, as you mentioned before, the only consumer need that's relevant for CMOS, right? Um, We've got everything from immunity, which is growing 27% year over year, um, general wellness, which is almost 30%. uh, There's fitness applications, gut health, an interesting one, which is up 40%. So CMOS uh, is one of those ingredients that people are really um, learning about, I think, really for the first time um, over the course of the last year. And they're seeing that it supports a variety of functional needs that they're um, already looking to support in their everyday diets, right? Um, But fertility is one of those really interesting ones that um, we're seeing that it's growing 55% over the past two years. Um, It's still relatively low in terms of the the kind of constellation of of functional needs, right? Um, Gut health is something that as a society, we're much more used to seeing in the grocery store aisles than let's say fertility. Um, But fertility's growth is is statistically significant. um, And it's something that we're really keeping an eye on. Um, we were talking in the, the office and doing some kind of external third-party research about why this might be, um, and we're thinking about how the role of the pandemic um, and the changes in lifestyle and the changes in, um, you know, how we we live our everyday life and how we make decisions and how we make choices um, is influencing even the really the most personal and intimate aspects of our life, right? So um, family planning or thinking about, you know, our futures, all of that has come to bear in in really different ways over the course of the pandemic. Um, Coupled with consumer reliance on food and beverage uh, as, you know, food is medicine, as our CEO alone likes to say, right? Um, So consumers are much more willing to turn to food and beverage to accomplish those goals that they're thinking about in a new light over the course of the pandemic. So that's why I think fertility is particularly interesting right now. I'll give everybody um, a little bit of background on CMOS because it's one of those ingredients that we're like, oh, sure, CMOS, a moss in the sea, right? What is there really to know? But there is so much to know, Ron. Let me tell you about it. So CMOS um, has high zinc and folate content, um, which is why nutritionally it's it's uh, seen as being you know, legit for fertility purposes. Both of those um, boost its reputation as a kind of fertility um, fertility booster, if you will, in women. Um, several cultures around the world also talk about um, its aphrodisiac qualities, um, and it's also used as a thickening agent, which is really interesting in food and beverage. So it's um, you'll see it often in smoothies um, or in beverages, right, to kind of give it a, a textural element. So it's a really versatile ingredient um, and something that I think we're going to see a lot of different applications for um, in the coming year. Yeah, this is, um, I, that was not my reaction to CMOS at all. Like what you said, oh yeah, moss in the sea. <laughs> it's like, uh, of course, sure. <laughs> I, yeah. I more I more looked at it and I was like, what? <laughs> um, I feel like it taste-wise, the longer you sit with, you know, all these different trends and everything, you, you could tell me anything and I'd be like, yeah, of course. Sure. <laughs> like here, yeah. here's the nutritional, like back of the box uh, <laughs> breakdown of exactly why you should go for it. Um, I think it's also interesting to mention that it's not just 
uh, fertility and CMOS, uh, but there's a lot of uh, fast growing connections between uh, different things that it's all, by the way, all of this is in the report. So we have um, a full, uh, beautifully designed report that, uh, that you can just uh, uh, take a look at. I will make sure that the link to it is in the show notes, wherever you find the podcast. And also it's all over our website, at least for now. Um, and if you can't find it, just uh, send us a note to live at tastewise.io and we'll, uh, we'll send you the report. But I think that the connection, for example, between um, passion flower and sleep support or star fruit and, uh, and energy, like general energy applications, yeah. uh, is really interesting. So maybe something to take away from this is how important it is to tie an ingredient within something that uh, you're either selling or preparing or making a recipe for to a very, very niche and uh, specific need that your consumers are looking out for. So it's always about making it as easy as possible for this one keyword to stand out for your consumer and to either buy the uh, your product versus another product off the aisle or engage with uh, a recipe online. Just to make it super, super simple for them, um, when you're either messaging about your product or when you're um, just marketing it in general. And I, I think that the reverse of that is also true, right? It's not just about, um, you know, think about what you're trying to accomplish with your product and find an ingredient that supports it and talk about it. But it's also, if you're already using kind of a hero ingredient, um, do the deep dive research into, you know, how are consumers associating or what are consumers associating in the functional health universe to that ingredient? Um, and how can you kind of support that as well in your marketing? Um but you know what the hero ingredient is, Miriam? What's the hero Demos? ingredient? <laughs> Data. Ingredient? Data is the oh, hero <laughs> ingredient. Didn't you come up That's with true. that line? <laughs> I did. Sorry. <laughs> yes, Data is the hero ingredient. And in 2022, CMOS will join the ingredient inventors for the year. Nice. Let's it's make sure away. this is the, the sound bite. <laughs> yeah. um, and with uh, that beautiful segue, let's uh, let's move on to the, <laughs> to the next trend. Awesome. Okay, so um, we've covered CMOS, and I think we can uh, maybe let's head to micronutrients. As long as we're thinking in the realm of functional health or or nutrition, um, we'll talk a little bit about micronutrients and their applications in the year ahead. So, um, micronutrients, um, <laughs> nutrients that are micro, sure, um, <laughs> but they're actually uh, it's a really interesting field, and it's something that um, used to be kind of the the um, niche interest of nutritionists or nutrition focused, uh, audiences, but we're actually seeing that there's a switch as, um, you know, nutritional information and food as medicine, quote unquote, um, becomes much more accessible to the kind of generic consumer or to the mainstream consumer. So we're seeing that, um, what used to be the kind of bread and butter, no pun intended, yes, pun intended, um, of nutrition audiences, right. Is actually becoming much more interesting to others. So um, the two that I want to look at today, uh, and there's a total range that you can see in the report um, of lots of different interesting ones. We've got, you know, adaptogens, zinc, electrolytes, prebiotics, um, botanicals, like all sorts of really great stuff, um, which are kind of drilled down into the health uh, motivations. Um, I want to talk about postbiotics and nootropics. Um, so postbiotics is the kind of third installment of, um, we, you know, we've got prebiotics, probiotics, and now we have postbiotics as well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And those are things that um, the majority of, of consumers that we're seeing are, are, you know, a high a high percentage of consumers are aware of support gut health, right? Um, so it's not particularly new, the concept of biotics, right, of using food and beverage to support um, our uh 
our guts, right, or our, our digestive systems. Um, so, but what's interesting about this is that postbiotics is now joining these other two of pre and pro to kind of create the start to finish A to Z gut health, right? Um, so we're able to have food and beverage that supports uh, digestive system before, during, and after, um, which I think is is cluing into how consumers are um, getting so granular with the types of health that they want and the types of things that they want to support um, their bodies and their health. Um, so an example of a postbiotic would be um, a fermented superfood, right? So fermentation, we know, um, we know it for, we know and love it for its prebiotic content, right? But as soon as you add in the superfood aspect as well, you're kind of amping things up and allowing uh, the ingredient to kind of take on this really kind of niche quality to support uh, what you're looking for. So fermented superfoods are up 24% um, over the past two years. Um, and postbiotics themselves, and here's the real drum roll moment, um, are up over 2,000% over the past two years. Um, so 2,355%. Um, and I just want to note for us that that is statistically uh, statistically significant. Um, if you are a longtime listener of the pod or you know follow any of our taste content, you know that we don't just, you know, wow, 2,000%, that's great, and, and just throw it out there, right? We really do a lot of um, research and, and effort to make sure that uh, the data is supporting this as something that is um, significant and something worth watching. Um, so this is, it's not just growing from, you know, one guy in Minnesota talking about postbiotics to now three guys or whatever it would be, right? Um, we've got, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of folks who are looking at this. So definitely worth looking at. Got to look out for those uh, guys from Minnesota. I have a, I have a quick <laughs> well question. Known. <laughs> yeah, well known yeah. for their interest in, in postbiotics. Um, yeah. But uh, quick question about this. So is this people mentioning postbiotics uh, and nootropics specifically, or is this us making the connection between fermented superfoods as postbiotics? Or is this the context in which people are looking for this? The answer to that is yes to all three. Um, so it depends on, on the use case. Um, our The way that our AI works is that it's able to not only understand when consumers are talking about postbiotics themselves, but are able to identify, you know, within the umbrella category of postbiotics, what is a postbiotic? What do people mean when they, you know, they talk about certain things? So um, in the context of fermented superfoods, when people are looking for postbiotics, that's what I was referencing, um, referencing mm -hmm. before. Um, I want to pull out just an interesting number here before we move on to nootropics, um, or an interesting observation, rather. Um, so we take a look at several different audiences um, to understand, okay, is this just for nutritionists? Is this something just that, you know, nutrition uh, passionate people are, are talking about and thinking about and consuming? Um, so we took a look at um, uh, gender-specific audiences, um, generational-specific audiences, and affinity audiences. And we found that um, that uh, female male, Gen X, and millennial audiences um, are all significantly growing over the past two years in their interest in postbiotics, um, actually outstripping interest in just uh, regular nutritionists, um, which is really interesting. So that kind of covers a, a kind of a, a fairly large swath of the consumer population, right? Um, if you think about men, women, millennials, and Gen X all together, um, and you think about, you know, that a significant uh, or, you know, a small but mighty growing percentage of each of those audiences is interested in postbiotics. I think that's a really kind of essential piece of data to have uh, in your back pocket when you're thinking about um, these kind of nutritionally niche uh, ingredients. So this used to be like the realm of nutritionists and we're seeing this expanding into other audiences now. And we expect this exactly. to continue growing into 2022. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Um, and its partner in crime will be nootropics. Uh, so nootropics are actually up 187% over the past few years. Um, so a little bit less than that 2000 some odd um, 
statistic we looked at for postbiotics, but still really you know significant. 187% over the past few years is significant. So nootropics are um, composed of vitamins, lipids, phytochemicals, and antioxidants. Um, and their one purpose is to boost brain health. Um, so they're kind of viewed as these cognition enhancers, um, which is great because we see that brain health is actually up 33% in the last two years among general audiences. Um, and a, a great example of a trending nootropic would be lion's mane. Um, so a fungus, it's up 159% over the past two years. Um, and it's something that can really support uh, in consumer perception brain health. And is something that we're seeing um, kind of across the board. Um, I'll give a few more, if we have a second, I'll give a, a few more um, interesting pieces of, of information here. So um, consumers are actually three times more likely to talk about nootropics and postbiotics in beverage form than in food form. Um, so we're seeing that beverages are already kind of the place to watch when we're looking at experimentation with these micronutrients. And that's going to continue to be the case. Um, that's not to say, you know, throw out food as a, uh, or, you know, dishes as a, a a, uh, let's say, Petri dish, if you will, for um, this experimentation. But it does mean that beverages are going to be, I think, top of mind, um, especially for kind of this uh, gut or, you know, belly-focused work um, in brain health as well. Um, so TLDR, micronutrients, pretty cool. Postbiotics, nootropics on the rise. Take a look at beverages um, and brain health and gut health are going to continue to be relevant in the year ahead. I, I was sure you are going to go for the the title in the report, Beverages Will Boost Bellies and Brains. <laughs> yep, I thought about it and then I, I I didn't do it. So I'm glad that you did. <laughs> that's that's what I'm here for, to just like yep. really push you over the edge <laughs> on like saying these things on a platform. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you're it? almost like disappointed with yourself because <laughs> you wrote all of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Okay, right. shall we continue to our next trend? Let's go for it. So I think next I would like us to take a look at um, sustainability because that is a, a really important um, field and something that I want us to spend a little bit of time on. Mm -hmm. So um, newsflash, friends, longtime pod listeners, newcomers, sustainability is a big deal. Um, climate change is here. It's a, it's an urgent and important task for us in the food and beverage industry to um, really be doing our part and our share in creating a, a uh healthier planet, um, both for the sake of the planet itself and the environment and for everyone who lives on it, right? Um, and food and beverage is one of those industries that has a great impact on the world around us, um, both from a consumption perspective and from um, a, a uh, what's the word? Production, right? But from both production into consumption, and um, we're seeing a lot of effects that the food and beverage industry can have um, on the planet. And we know that there are a um, you know a huge number of folks in the food and beverage industry, everything from you know major brands to up and coming startups, who are really taking sustainability seriously um, and are making changes both in how they produce and um, market and sell and you know support the consumption of their consumers to create a healthier planet. So this is something that um, you know we're we're in this incredibly urgent moment for sustainability um, globally. And um, it's important to note that throughout the course of the pandemic, interest or the you know the start of the pandemic, let's say at least in 2020, um, interest in sustainability dropped just a little bit, um, and that makes sense. We've covered that before, both on the podcast and in our uh, you know our content here at Tastewise, um, thinking about how you know personal health became more urgent for consumers than planetary health, um, but. Sustainability is back. Um, it never really fully left. Um, and consumers are at 24% more interested this year than two years ago in sustainability. So um, we're seeing about a, you know, let's say a, a quarter 
um, if we think about it that way, uh, more interest um, over the past two years. Um, and we're seeing a special interest specifically in this particular moment in regenerative farming, habitat conservation, and carbon footprint. Um, so again, echoing what we just talked about for functional foods, about how people are getting more niche specific um, and are kind of drilling down into uh, these umbrella categories to find the things that really support them. And we can do the very same thing uh, for sustainability. So just like we said, okay, functional health matters, nootropics are supporting that. We can look at sustainability and say, okay, sustainability matters. And folks are turning towards, let's say, regenerative farming, right? Um, Mm -hmm. To kind of support that. So consumers are becoming much more sophisticated. They're learning a lot more about not only what's going on inside of their bodies for functional health, but what's going on out in the world, right? Um, They're they're learning about, you know, what does regenerative farming actually mean? How can they participate? How can their consumption and their purchasing patterns reflect the values that they hold? Yeah. Um, so regenerative farming is actually up 187% over the past two years, which is really significant. Um, it joins habitat conservation, which is up 53% over the past two years, and carbon footprint, which is up 31%. So discussions of food and beverage in the context of each of those. Is uh, when you say regenerative uh, farming, you mean in the so people are mentioning mentioning this in this context. They're they're looking mm-hmm. for food and beverage that was uh, produced. Like, it, is is it like a process of uh, manufacturing food? Yeah, it's a it's a growers or it's it takes place kind of at the farm level. Um, if we think of it that way, so using um pr- using practices that support. Um, you know, the soil health or the um, basically allowing these uh, growing contexts to keep, uh, what's the right word? I keep wanting to say regenerate themselves, but um, allow them to uh, like sustain themselves over time, right? That we're not depleting the the earth's um, bounty or the earth's, you know, ability to sustain us. Um, So a great example of that uh, and something that we saw in the data is that, uh, you know, an example would be Consider Pastures. It's an egg brand. um, And so they're taking great care in their, uh, the way that they raise their animals, right? Their hens. Um, They're taking great care to make sure that they are allowing the land to, um, to kind of heal and continue to support uh, their egg manufacturing business. So it's a really fascinating area. It's something that we're seeing more and more folks getting interested in, um, mm-hmm. everything from, you know, produce to livestock and beyond. Um, and we're seeing lots of different applications. What I really love about um, trends like these or or when we find in the data things that reaffirm how much people care about sustainability and planetary health or even just their own health um, is because... It reaffirms a lot of what we're trying to do here at TasteWise. It reaffirms a lot of our Mm -hmm. mission because there's a wave of companies out there in the world that are very much dedicated into helping create um, a version of this world, a version of our future um, that is more sustainable, that all of us can live in happily on this planet without, uh, you know, (laughs) burning it out or, um, Mm -hmm. or using all of its resources um, a lot of companies, a lot of like the major players in our market understand that things have to be done right now for us to um, keep this planet sustainable. And a lot of the power to do it is in their hands as the, the biggest manufacturers in the world. Um, so you, earlier you said uh, you talked about sustainability, health and, and taste. 
Um, so we keep talking about how the future has to be sustainable, healthy, and, and delicious. And I love seeing how there are all these different companies, like this new wave of companies that are trying to achieve this goal. Some of these companies are trying to do this by 3D printing meat or uh, mm -hmm. companies, some companies are creating um, alternatives to um, um, to eggs or finding more sustainable way to, to grow eggs, like uh, consider pastures, for example. And some companies, yeah. uh, like TasteWise, for example, are taking a route that is more driven by data and, uh, and AI. Um, and what I love in what we do is that um, we're essentially saying to our customers and to everybody listening, um, we're just exposing the, the data that helps you get closer to yeah. your consumers. That's what we do through our SaaS platform. And I love that this is what the data shows, that people care about sustainability. And so it's the right business decision as well as the right ethical decision, moral decision uh, to really focus yeah. on these things. Um, so I, yeah, I, I just get really excited for, about this. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent, excellent point. Um, I really like that, that the data is reflecting this um, this shift. So it's, you know, it's good for people, it's good for planet, and it's good for the business, which is the kind of the triple bottom line that we should all be looking out for, I think, right now. Um, I also want to note that, you know, for brands that are listening, let's say you're a smaller brand, you're like, okay, I, I don't have the capacity to be investing in um, regenerative farming, right? What do I do? Um, how do I how do I kind of pivot and, and find uh, sustainability uh, practices for my own brand. And there's, there's so much out there and we're not the experts, you know, here to make recommendations for you about, um, you know, what you should be doing specifically. But the great news is that the data reflects that consumers are interested in sustainability across the board, both from these niche areas all the way up through, um, you know, general claims of sustainability. Um, and the second part of this trend that I want to focus on is actually about those claims. Um, so let's say that you're interested in, uh, you know, you're, you, let's say you don't have necessarily have the capacity for, uh, you know, changing your entire production structure, um, or maybe you already have, and you're looking for ways to actually turn towards uh, the marketing side of things, right? So how do you tell the story of your product um, and the sustainability efforts that you are able to do? Um, so something that we're, we're finding in the data is that certifications are going to come to play quite a lot in 2022 and the years beyond. This is a, a multi-year uh, project. This is not something that's going to, you know, 2022 is going to fix all of a sudden, right? This is something that we're going to see continue over the course of time. Um, but we're seeing that uh, the the industry or you know brands who are engaging in the sustainability space really must double down on sustainability certifications. There is not one certification in the market right now that is seen as consistently reliable by consumers. Um, but we are seeing that there is this hunger and interest in certifications as a general category. Um, in our data, we find that certifications that combine a commitment to both people and planet um, fare a lot better than those that just focus on planetary alone. Um, so what does that mean? Something like, uh, you know, the uh, Rainforest Alliance certification, right? This is something we see a lot in coffee and chocolate. Um, so when they're able to, to have conversations about, okay, we are, we are certifying that labor practices and planetary effect um, are both, you know, really positive here. Um, that's something that consumers are, are attuned to more than the current um, certifications that just focus on planetary health. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't have a certification for just planetary health, just for sustainability, but it is pointing towards the fact that as consumers are becoming more demanding, more sophisticated, understanding the relationship between people and planet, and that there is a lot of really interesting opportunities here for certifications to, to come up to bat. Um, so my hope is, you know, by the end of 2022, we see 
I, you know, I'm really used to seeing now that, you know, the gluten-free certification, the organic certification, uh, you know, let's say keto, kosher, vegan, whatever, right? These are the top kind of certification categories. I would love to see um, more certifications for uh, sustainability. You know, we already have in the seafood industry some certifications that are, are growing quickly in interest. Um, so let's make that kind of broader across the industry. So these certifications are issued by um, like third-party vendors, right? Or like by nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Regul- like regulatory bodies. Yeah. You talked a little bit about uh, certifications. Um, we touched on uh, on claims, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit. I don't know if you want to get into it uh, here. We can uh, expand on it. On uh, We have a, a webinar upcoming on this. And of course, there's the report itself. Um, but uh, this whole, so there's a section of the report that talks about how uh, consumers have zero tolerance for fake news. Um, yeah. which I don't know mm-hmm. if you're planning to, to go into r- right now, um, but it's sure. just something that I find so, so fascinating because you, you started to touch on it when you were talking about marketing, right? Um, where you're essentially saying, okay, I already have this product out there um, and I want to make a marketing effort in order to get closer to either a specific trend or a consumer need. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I could do is to make claims about my product that get it closer uh, to them. Um, but I think that what we're finding is that unless you actually have the proof to, to back it up when it yeah. comes to your product, um, people are going to find out. People have a much, much lower tolerance for any claim that can't really be substantiated um, in this space. And the easiest way to publicly substantiate them is with certifications, right? Yeah, because exactly. when you have... Either the, you know, in Israel, at least there's this, this very popular, like vegan friendly logo that mm-hmm. uh, you see everywhere. I don't know if it's the same in the in the U.S., um, but um, anything from looking for something that is kosher to looking to something that is super, super niche, like uh, you said, like the Rainforest uh, Alliance or things like that. Mm-hmm. That seems to yeah. be the easiest way and also the best, like mutually like beneficial way to to substantiate your claims about something about your product, um, which is why we really believe that brands need to double down on them. And it's also an opportunity um, for the organizations that are putting together these certifications that are usually nonprofits, but it's a it's a um, opportunity for them to really expand their reach and use this data to explain to the food and beverage industry the importance of uh, these types of things. It also exactly. makes it just easier for the consumer you know, if they follow a certain diet, it, it doesn't have to do with sustainability and, and uh, planetary health. It's also just personal health. If I'm following a certain diet and if I'm following keto, I want to see something that is certified as part of that um, lifestyle, right, on, uh, on right. the shelf. Just make it easier for me to buy it. Exactly. Yeah. And making the consumer's lives easier will in turn, uh, you know, make everything easier, right? If a consumer is much more likely to buy a sustainable product because they see that it's sustainable and it aligns with their values, right? Um, that, that'll make things, I think, a lot easier and, and change will progress faster. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for that clarification, too. I, I just want to make sure that I, what I was saying was not, you know, if you can't afford or don't have the capacity right now to work with, you know, something like regenerative farming, then just make a claim on your package. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you already have sustainability, um, you know, things that are going on in your brand and choices that you've made and things that you're working towards, um, making a claim in a way on your packaging that is both clear and trustworthy is really important. Um, yeah. Okay. I think we have time for one more. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this is an exciting one. I want to talk a little bit about um, global cuisines. Um, so something that we are calling food tourism, um, which is really exciting. So I forgot to do the drum roll before, but hopefully you did it in your own minds. Um, so we're looking at how um, kind of with these unpredictable shifts in travel restrictions that we're seeing as part of our new reality during you know these COVID years, um, people are using the kitchen to explore different cultures. And that in and of itself isn't particularly new, right? We saw that even at the start of COVID that people were um, you know, feeling cooped up at home and they were looking for new ways to experiment and to try new things. And, and in that moment, we actually saw a huge increase. I don't have the number in front of me, but um, in claims like you know authenticity, traditional um, people were looking for ways to explore um, those sides of you know kitchen or of home cooking and, and in their kitchens, kind of uh, and expanding that globally. Um, but what's really interesting in this particular moment, when we're kind of um, almost let's say two years into this thing, and by this thing, I mean COVID, um, we're looking at how uh, folks are actually diving deep into regional cuisines. Um, so this is tied very much to the rise of slow tourism, um, which is a, you know, a, a trend in the tourism space um, where people are taking advantage of uh, unique local kind of connection-oriented experiences when they are able to travel. Um, so that means, you know, uh, staying away from, quote-unquote, the touristy type of experience and finding ways to create real connections and experience, uh, you know, cultures firsthand um, and in respectful and sustainable ways. Um, and we're seeing that actually reflected in uh, two areas. One, people are actually able to travel because we know that the world in, in some ways it has opened up quite a bit. Um, and that, of course, is in flux in any given moment. Uh, but people who are able to travel are taking advantage of um, food and beverage opportunities abroad. And then they're bringing it back with them into their kitchens. Um, so that's one side of it. And the other side is people who aren't able to travel are actually uh, using their kitchen as kind of their spaceship, let's say, to other places. Um, so they're they're really taking advantage of um the opportunities that we're seeing this, you know, digitalized technological world of being able to say, okay, hey, um, I'm going to take a cooking class at seven um, from a, you know, a Bengali chef um, and learn how to create this really amazing dish. Or, you know, there, uh, there's any number of kind of anecdotal, and I think we all maybe participated in some way or another um, in something like that. Um, so within this experiential framework that we're talking about right now, um, about people wanting to experience their food and beverage from this perspective of global cuisines um, and kind of connecting to cultures in that way, we're seeing that folks are drilling down specifically. And again, here's that drill down, right? When we're talking about taking an umbrella category and getting more niche as consumers are becoming more demanding and more sophisticated, um, we're seeing that Latin American, Caribbean, and Indian regional cuisines are particularly growing right now um, in interest nationwide. So out of you know all the different areas of the world, um, these are the three that we are seeing becoming um, more and more uh, kind of top of mind for consumers. Um, so I'll just kind of run through some of the numbers here. So um, Bengali food and beverage in the U.S. is growing 54% over the past two years or has grown 54% over the past two years. Kashmiri cuisine is up 59%. Gujarati is up 42.5%. Carolyn, 74%, and Tamilian, 72%. Um, so all of these are pretty significant numbers over the past two years. Um, so we're, we're seeing this switch uh, from, you know, American audiences just saying, hey, I'm going to have Indian food for dinner, to understanding that the continent is incredibly, uh, or the subcontinent is, is incredibly diverse um, and has incredible, you know, wealth and range of uh, regional cuisines and are exploring those. So um, some of the dishes just to kind of, wet your taste buds a little bit, let's say. Um, the fastest growing dishes over the past two years that we're kind of seeing within this matrix of Indian cuisines um, are Rogan Josh, Misal, um, 
and Faluda. So those come from everywhere from um, Maharashtrian cuisine to Kashmiri cuisine um, and beyond. Um, and the last note that I'll give for at least this, this example of Indian cuisines um, is that interest in authenticity is actually up 21% just in the last year for Indian cuisines. So this is kind of the supporting metric for, for why, right? Folks are interested in a really authentic experience. They're doing it in home kitchens. They're also going out to eat and exploring, you know, things more. Um, and so they're using Indian cuisines and regional trends uh, to kind of support their, their hunger for exploring the world. That's um, so I'm uh, I'm looking at uh, page 10 of the report that has a map of mm -hmm. India and shows kind of the the layout of um, of what you're referring to. And again, um, the report is available to everybody listening. Just uh, look for yeah. look for the links. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, so I think that a question that comes up often when we talk about stuff like this is, are we talking about uh, menu items? Are we talking about recipes, things that are uh, that people are, are making at home? Um, how how can this tie to a specific ingredient or product that that I'm making? And I think that um, one of the things that this shows is really why we can't um, just rely on retail data uh, in order to make yeah. these deductions and in order to make these type of, uh, of predictions for what we should be focusing on. Because we know, for example, uh, and we have data to, to back this up, uh, that when someone buys, when a consumer buys something at a retail store, odds are that they're using that in conjunction with other things uh, to make mm -hmm. something, right? If you're um, buying uh, rice, uh, for example, um, you're, odds are you're not just going to use like the white jasmine rice that you bought to just make that. Maybe you are. I literally did that over the weekend. But um, <laughs> maybe there's a high percentage, actually more likely, that maybe you are making something. Maybe you're making a delicious um, Bengali dish, right? Or maybe you're making something yeah. that uh, requires a bunch of other uh, ingredients, which is why it's so important and crucial even to understand that consumers exist on all these different mediums, on social media, on their interactions with recipes, and of course also on what they order from menus and buy in uh, in retail. So the answer to is this only specifically like recipes or things that are people making at home is it's both, right? It's all yeah. it's the things that people are ordering, it's the things that people are making at home, it's what they're talking about um, on social media. Uh, they're not just taking pictures of, but also just interacting about and, and are interested in. So we gave a few examples from the Indian cuisine, but in the report, you'll find um, a similar like type of example, a similar template for um, South American and Caribbean cuisines, which is really, yeah. really interesting. But the takeaway here is the focus on authenticity and the focus on um, just understanding that there's now a, you have a much more educated and digitally enabled consumer that mm. is it's no longer enough for them to just say I'm having Indian or I'm having South American food. They now understand the diversity of each type of cuisine and expect very specific benefits from very specific types of dishes. And we're seeing that across the board, right? You said earlier, it's no longer health. It has to be gut health or stress relief or right. anxiety exactly. or brain health. 
um, which I think is it's amazing to see us evolving as consumers. That's it. that's the end of my rant. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly it, and that's the biggest takeaway that I would say from these top four trends. Right? Um, there is room, absolutely, and I'm sure for those of you who are listening, you you maybe see this in your own work. You know, if you want to work on Kashmiri cuisine or sea moss or you know whatever new tropics, great, more power to you. Go for it. Those are really interesting um, ingredients and and you know within concepts that are really interesting. Um, but the biggest takeaway that I would say from all of this is that within the kind of macro categories that we've seen increasing over the past two years, consumers are becoming much more um, sophisticated and demanding, as I've said a couple times here, right, in, in what they're looking for. So um, really do your research um, back it up in a trustworthy way. Um, we've seen this within sustainability, we've seen it within functional health, and we've seen it within um, cuisine preferences, right? So those are three really interesting categories um, and use data to help you uh, make decisions that will reach your your target consumers faster and uh, and easier. Awesome. So uh, to wrap us up, I'll just mention one more time that uh, this report is available for everybody who's interested in it. Um, it should be in yeah. the description for the show on tastewise.io. Um, I also want to mention that if you want to do some of your own research, you can do so for free um, using Tastewise Starter. So if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you're probably familiar with Tastewise Spotlight, our free edition. So recently we launched a brand new free edition called Tastewise Starter that includes not just our Spotlight report that maybe you know and love, but also a top trends dashboard that shows you every day new exciting ingredients um, and uh, flavors and dishes that are on the rise and that you should be taking a look at. Um, if you see anything that you want to do some further research on, just feel free to send us a note at live at tastewise.io and we'll help you out. Um, and we could even give you, um, just a week of uh, free downloads from the platform, meaning that, uh, you could download the reports yourself, um, in uh, PowerPoint form if, uh, you need them in order to make a pitch presentation, uh, like, uh, about, uh, uh, trend analysis uh, internally to your team. So we really all we want to do there is just you know help make your day easier because I'm sure just like us <laughs> you're kind of really steeped in end of year planning, trying to figure out focus for next year. Um, so we really want to be of service for uh, for everybody. Um, and uh, finally, our uh, webinar. So we're doing a webinar. Um, I'm not sure that this episode will go out. Um, before the webinar is, is already out. And this episode of the podcast might be released after the webinar is already out there. But I think that on there, um, we'll probably go even in more depth and obviously with all the visuals into all of these trends. Yeah. Um, so that should be up on the website as well. And you should be able to, to see the, the recording. I'm uh, disclaiming this with should just... In case that I don't know <laughs> the internet blows up or something, but I think uh, yeah. I think it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, Kim Kardashian releases another you know image or something, and the internet breaks. What are we gonna do? Yeah, the internet breaks. I, I believe the internet <laughs> kept working that day. You know, it's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I just want to thank the team that helps uh, put the podcast together. Um, I'm uh, looking forward for a really exciting season of uh, of doing these podcasts with you, Miriam. Um, always, uh, always a highlight of the week. Um, so with that, I hope you have a really fantastic holiday season. Um, we will see you very, very soon. And I hope this has been helpful for you. This has been the longest outro ever. So I'm going to wrap it up. 
Awesome. Stay toasty, friends. That's my new, uh, my winter sign-off for the season. <laughs> All right. Stay toasty. I hope, yeah, I hope you feel good with that because that's that's going to be on record I, forever. I don't, but we're gonna we'll leave it. Bye, everybody. Bye.